the, the shift from output to presence uh, in, in office culture happened because managers all of a sudden you know, are managing knowledge workers that weren't doing the same exact uh, task every single hour of every single day, but they still need something to do. Cause like, what are managers supposed to do if uh, the whole point of a manager is to track and to manage work. And so I think uh, the historical explanation for the rise of managing presence, which is okay, well, I may not know what you're typing in that document, but um, I can see if you're sitting in your chair from nine to five or attending meetings or responding to messages. And so presence became a reason for managers to exist. Hey everyone, welcome to Leading From Afar, a show by remote leaders for remote leaders, where we dive into the most important topics facing leaders in the future of work. I'm your host, Scott Markovitz. I was the first hire at Envision, one of the first all remote companies back in 2012. I've since helped build and scale multiple remote teams as an early employee or consultant. In each episode, we geek out doing deep dives on specific topics like within async, hiring the best talent anywhere, how to create a fun and engaging environment remotely, and so much more. This show was created to help managers leading remotely upskill themselves to help them build world-class remote cultures. If you enjoyed this content, please feel free to support me by subscribing in your favorite podcasting app, share it with friends and colleagues, and feel free to buy me a coffee via the show's website. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for joining. How's everything going today? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, I appreciate uh, you joining. And from our conversation before we started hitting record, you, you noted that you're in Lisbon for, for running remote, which is uh, quite a, quite exciting. We'd love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, but usually the way we start each episode is telling us a little bit more about yourself. We'd love to hear a little bit more about the origin story of Almanac. And I think based on the topic we're going to speak today, maybe just kind of a brief history of your remote work experience, when it started, how it started, and all those good pieces, and we'll, we'll dive right in. Sure. So do you want me to just head into that story? Yeah, go for it. Cool. Uh, so yeah, my name's uh, Adam. I'm the CEO and, and co-founder of a company called Almanac, which is a structured collaboration platform for remote teams. Uh, my background's in systems engineering, and before I got into tech, I worked at a lot of uh, kind of complex organizations, starting uh, in the Obama White House to uh, the, to the nonprofit sector, to running strategy at uh, Hawaiian Airlines. Uh, but for the past 10 years before, the reason I started Almanac is because I was spending a lot of my time at those companies doing work that didn't feel like work. It wasn't work that was on my job description, certainly wasn't work I woke up in the morning to do. Uh, it was things like sitting in back-to-back -back meetings all day long, uh, trying to stay on top of the never-ending deluge of notifications from Slack and email, um, you know, all the while uh, late at night after uh, the chaos finally subsided, you know, having to do my real job uh, in, into the, the late hours of the night or wee hours of the morning. And again, that just didn't seem like the, the work that I was hired to do or the work that I wanted to do. And I had this contrast with the engineers I worked with because I was a product manager who collaborated uh, not in meetings and emails or Slack messages, but in GitHub, which is a structured collaboration platform for developing code. Uh, and the engineers I worked with 
um, were both way more productive than I, I was in terms of actual output and also seemingly happier. Uh, and so I started thinking like, what, what's going on with software development uh, that makes them um, so much better at their jobs than, than we are and also so much more satisfied? And how might we extrapolate some of those concepts over to knowledge work or, or, um, or the business functions? And so that was the origin of Almanac. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a great story and, and great to hear. So when did you start, when did you go remote for the first time? Was it with Almanac or were you able to work remotely uh, with some of the previous companies as well? Ironically, uh, it was with Almanac. Uh, I even think we thought about ourselves at first as a remote organization. Um, one of my initial co-founders was based in the United Kingdom. Uh, and, and so we were remote from the start because he didn't move to San Francisco where I live. Uh, and as we expanded the team, you know, we, we, like a lot of employers were faced with this choice of spending an exorbitant amount of money to hire uh, maybe a, a mediocre person in our, in, in my local home market of the Bay area or um, expanding our search to the world <laughs> and finding uh, higher quality talent uh, often for cheaper prices um, that were, you know, even more excited to work at, at our fledgling startup than someone say who has been at Google or Facebook for their career. So it was a pretty obvious choice from the start that as we expanded the team, um, especially on the technical side, that uh, we should be looking uh, to find the best folks wherever they lived. Um, it, it made business sense uh, in, in many ways. And so we, we, that's how we started and grew the team. Um, I think before we even knew it was called remote or distributed. Uh, and uh, we've stayed that way ever since. Amazing. What year was this? 2019. Okay, so in the, I guess seemingly right before the pandemic uh, got got going, but yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. That was okay. Yeah, I think we have a little bit of a delay, but that uh, is fine. Um, yeah, I mean that's my, in my, essence the, the sorry, I just yeah, it's quite right. Have anything else open? But uh, <laughs> no problem. So I mean that, that's seemingly the origin story of Envision. So I've been remote for eleven plus years, that was the first hire at Envision. I think we were probably the third or fourth all remote company back then. And I mean, that was the idea of getting the best talent anywhere, right? And uh, that was an issue faced up, I think up to and including, right? Or at least the beginning of the pandemic. It's if you were in whatever market you were and you were a startup, unless you were curing cancer or getting people to Mars, you couldn't compete against Facebook and Google and Apple because, right, you just, you couldn't compete. I think nowadays, right, the, I think the tables have turned, especially on companies like that, uh, who are re refusing to do remote work, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. But a lot of these yeah. companies, especially pre-pandemic that I had, I had met, uh, many of them were coming out of Paris and, and Berlin, and they all kind of said the same thing. Hey, no, we're, we're trying to build a startup from the ground up. We, we can't access the talent in Paris or, or Berlin. Uh, again, they're all at these big companies. So we understand we have to be remote first to be able to hire the best talent anywhere. Um, and it's yep. a very kind of consistent story. And I think one of the themes we'll get into in our conversation today is that idea. And what I like to argue about is in the hybrid model, right? If you had any companies starting today or right back to potentially the 2019, I'm, I'm assuming very much on the confidence side that almost 0% of those companies would say, hey, we want to build a hybrid company, right? We want to have yep. some people in an office and some people over here and then doing like, like who would be stupid enough to do that? It's almost impossible to build a great office culture. It's even more difficult to build a remote culture and like hyper culture, forget it. So who the hell would do that? But it's all these companies who are 
big and established now who are obviously, again, we'll get in a conversation, pivoted to remote work during the pandemic are now kind of somewhat stepping back. And it's not because, hey, they believe this is the optimal model. It's this is kind of a, a middle ground. But I think we'll we'll dive more into that topic. And so I think the foundation of this topic is you no know, number maybe a month and a half ago or something, you you reached out to me and I, I thank you for that opportunity to you know, be a collaborator on uh, I guess what I'm gonna call it a manifesto for the future of work, uh, the future of how work will look like and what work will be. And I, I great, greatly uh, appreciate the opportunity. And what it did was kind of raise questions um, for me to think about, especially as we move forward and all the kind of ups and downs we've had of what I see. And I think we spoke about this uh, before we started recording. It's I think 50% 50 of, of us getting to the real future work will be bits of like the manifesto that you're that will be out by the time this episode comes out of it. This is exactly how to do the future work. This is exactly how to do asynchronous communication. This is exactly how to hire globally. This is exactly how to do it. Playbooks that every company can kind of you pick up and run with uh, and be able to successfully transition over. I think what a conversation I want to focus on today is the background of the history of work, how work has changed through the various evolutions, right? Kind of the future future of work, I would say, is maybe like a version four. Um, what differences came with each change, good, bad, why they change, and how all those bits and pieces impact what the future of work will look like, whether it's good, whether it's bad, and, and what those pieces will, and really just have a, I think, a deep conversation, just, I think, thinking out loud, I think, more than anything else, right? None of us are prophets, so none of us, in essence, really know what the future future of work will look like, but I think we both have good senses of what we believe it should look like and why it should look like that way. So if that's cool, we'll, we'll go uh, in that direction. Sure, let's do it. Awesome. So, right, let, let's start back with the biggest, probably, evolution to the way people worked in, in the Industrial Revolution. I think the Industrial Revolution will will put the time frame from, right, mid-1800s up to, I think, including World War II. And kind of, you know, digging into different pieces of how work changed and what that those changes look like and how that impacted what we've been seeing afterwards and what we're going to see in the future. So I think let's start off with right? The need for a central place to work, i.e. an office or a factory, right? Everyone previously was an agrarian society, lived out in the fields, farmed, industrial revolution came along and you built widgets or what you were building. And that required big, heavy machinery and, and whatever was in those factories. But you couldn't have those bits and pieces, of those machinery all over the place. You had it in one central factory, right? So the idea of urbanization, right? People left the whatever fields came to the cities because that's where the job was. All the work had to be done in the specific environment, uh, in, a, in the specific factory. And now that was the first introduction of the centrality of getting work done, right? Which I think impacted post-World War II and now is kind of coming back of moving away from that with which, what you said of the internet of work uh, and not needing an, an episode or not needing a requirement for a place like that. Um, so just maybe wanted to dig into that of, right? So you had horrible conditions, right? People left the field, they moved to these urban areas, terrible conditions, terrible living conditions, terrible working conditions. It was a, a bad experience, but that's what you needed to do. And we'll have a kind of just, again, we're thinking out loud here of how that change has impacted work post. And what, again, the thoughts of moving away from that and now, again, that we don't need a central factory 
how that impacts how we're where we're going to be working from in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm no economic historian, so I, I don't uh, profess to be an expert on on the history of work, uh, but certainly the the world that most people alive today um, have started work in is an office environment, which, yes, as you say, is, uh, um, you know, a pretty close evolution to the way that we used to produce factory goods in World War II. Uh, and managers, uh, even, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, uh, were managing white collar professionals as if they were um, parts on a factory line, which is to say that uh, they managed work that only happened uh, in real time, work that only happened in person. Uh, and the management style required a, a lot of control and minimal transparency. You know, you only need to know the information to do your part of the process. There was someone, you know, like literally above the factory floor uh, who is watching the whole thing, making sure it's working together. But you didn't need to, um, you had that broader context to do your job. And, uh, you know, it certainly works fine in a, in a factory setting where um, every person or step in a process is only doing one thing. Um, it doesn't really work as well uh, for creative work or for knowledge work where uh, you do need more information um, and more collaboration cross-functionally. But at the same time, you know, we didn't see people quitting their jobs in mass <laughs> uh, like we did in the last couple of years. And so I, I think while work wasn't perfect before, uh, it was manageable uh, and, and, you know, to some degree sustainable if you look at the data. Uh, and so, you know, what, what we see happening recently is um, it's not sustainable. It's it's not normal, but it is pretty new uh, when you look at you know employee engagement and sustainability and retention data. Uh, the you know the post pandemic period, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two into twenty twenty three, um, shows like a bunch of indicators around work blinking red, <laughs> and that's what's particularly fascinating to me uh, because uh, as I, as I mentioned. We, we do see now, you know, mass levels of disengagement and burnout and uh, quiet quitting and real quitting from work um, on the employee side and on the management side, a ton of uh, confusion and and dissatisfaction as well. You know, no one's, uh, there's, there's a huge mismatch right now between the way that we're working now, which is where, where we're working, which is on the internet and, and how we're working, which is as if we're all still back in that office from nine to five. Yeah. And I think the, that concept of the factory and the office there was right. And that transferred into post-World War II office work and moved towards white collar, as you mentioned, because the access to do your job where the tools that you needed to do your job were essentially located and, and you couldn't get around that. And I think obviously with the, the invention of the cloud that has kind of moved away, I think, but we're kind of, you know, dig into that as we get more towards that evolution. But so the idea of having a specific office, right? Now people still talk about, oh, you know, people are more productive and more collaborative in the office, right? I think both of us know that that's not true. I've probably at least three times more productive, not in the office than I ever was ever in an office, right? But they're yep. kind of stuck on that methodology of, right? The work had to be done in the office because historically it had to, again, really just more of a physical requirement versus a, a knowledge requirement. Uh, but now it's shifting away to that of, Right, we just need a device and an internet connection, and the right. Then we're not connecting to a, a an intranet. We're not uh, no needing computers or things that are in the office. We can now move away from that centrality of this is the location because this is the only place where you can do the work. 
kind of yep. transitioning to like the next point of what the red the industrial revolution kind of brought on was and again what we're seeing today is productivity based on output versus presence right industrial revolution there was i'm, I'm a huge uh geek when it comes to world war ii very fascinated by everything world war ii there was a, a great program i think on pbs number maybe about six months ago about ford building some like three mile long factory in, in like nowhere michigan to push out bomber planes and it was just mind-blowing to me that they were able to put out a entire bomber plane with some like three million parts once an hour and like that's just mind-blowing but at the end of the yeah. day right up into world war ii including world war ii you were judged, your productivity was judged on how many cards you got off the line, how many bomber planes you got off the line, how many widgets you created. So, right, that's how you measured productivity by an actual physical something that came out at the end of the day, at the end of the week, whenever that time there. And I think that is yep. pushed kind of, a, to me, I think has skipped most of the office work. And I think we'll, we'll dive into that, but it's still something very much present today of the idea of presence versus output and even a remote environment like when the pandemic happened all these companies were doing zoom check-ins in the morning and zoom check-ins in the evening and slack statuses and like all these different things of seeing presence um and again it made sense back then output will be very much of the future but how that presence has kind of you know mixed in and still mixes in today when right realistically it really doesn't need to be there yeah, well, I think the the shift from output to presence, uh, you know, in the in in office culture happened because managers all of a sudden, you know, we're we're managing knowledge workers that weren't doing the same exact uh, task every single uh, hour of every single day, and so, but they still need something to do because, like, what are managers supposed to do if um, the whole point of a manager is to track and to manage work? And so, I think that that, that was, I think. Uh, the historical explanation for the rise of managing presence, which is, okay, well, I may not know what you're typing in that document, but um, I, I can see if you're sitting in your chair from nine to five or attending meetings or responding to messages. And so present, presence became a, you know, a um, reason for managers to exist. And, uh, and yes, I think that that then detached what managers were tracking from, um, from actual output because they weren't at all looking to see is that work valuable um is that work uh, productive is it moving the needle for for the team or for the company uh and that led to i think that experience i talked about earlier of doing a lot of work that didn't really feel like work just uh you know like pushing a ball through mud or, or um paddling water uh underneath you and and i think a lot of people there's obviously a lot of pop culture tv shows and movies that um, empathize with with that perspective of just the, the mindlessness of office culture. Yeah. And I, I would even say that, I mean, that uh, will go post-shift, post-World War II shift from, from output to presence was a necessity, right? We got, went from completely blue work, blue collar work to now white collar work. And in an office, if you were an accountant, right, you were probably not putting out some financial statement on a day-to-day -day basis or an every week basis, right? You may mm -hmm. do take a whole quarter to put together a financial statement. Um, the jobs where output wasn't a very strict and easily accessible understanding. So I, I, I definitely think that there was a necessity to move towards presence because right, you couldn't really judge output when we shifted post-World War II into the white 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 collar work. And now I think 
even today, I believe that's part of an issue. And maybe would love to get your sense on this, that and I've, I've had this conversation with a couple of people uh, on this on this show about how we see that even in the future, right? I've been arguing with founders for the last God knows how long, um, right? Developers at the end of the day, push push code to GitHub, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning of that show, right? And in, in the old days, like you pushed new designs to Envision. If you're a customer support person, you asked, you answered 20 tickets in Zendesk. Right. If for an output, if I needed to see if you're actually productive, I just need to log into some cloud-based system and say, hey, did you answer tickets? Did you push code? Did you push new designs? Very clearly defined deliverables on a definable timeline, which makes sense as part of the future of work of again shifting back towards the original output. But there's still roles that are very kind of like the back office, ops, finance. I, I would even say product management on the on the sense that it's much more difficult to put a clear deliverable and a clear timeline. So I think that's part of the question of as we move in the future, like how do we, how do we do that? When you have some jobs that are right, super simple code, code changes, design changes, support tickets, sales calls. But if you're like a an, an people ops person, how do you, how do you validate you know, what you've done output? Do you do it totally not an output or contribution? Is it maybe focused on the idea of impact? which again, there is less of a timeline, but more if you just focus on, did this new policy change have the impact desire or greater? And we don't look at timelines. So I think that for me, part of the challenge of getting companies over towards that output versus presence, it's, even today, it's, it's very difficult within some positions with remote and async and everything that some companies have today to really measure on a, on a, on a, well, a kind of an easy way. I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with you that, uh, you know, engineering and design, uh, and even customer service are positions where you're just doing, you're just like pushing changes to code, uh, or to a, a design file in my experience, um, even something like customer service, uh, or support the work is, is varied every day. Uh, you know, some, as an engineer, for example, some days you're uh, building a new feature, some days you're, um, fixing bugs, some days you're making um, enhancements. Some days you're reviewing people's PRs mainly. So, and I think the same thing is true with a lot of, uh, with, I guess, all professions in knowledge work where um, every day may be a little bit different. Um, even if the, you know, the core responsibilities of your job you might be able to bullet them out in a list of five to 10 things. I think uh, the work that you do is pretty dynamic. And so when we, but it, so I think your question is relevant for everybody. You know, how do you measure output in a world where every day looks a little bit different? And for us at Almanac, we think a lot about this because we think about work as a game and I think people are playing games in every part of their lives. And uh, it's the question is always just what game are you playing? And in, 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 a, in a world where the game of work is around presence, the game is, um, you know, how many meetings can you have on your calendar? How late do you stay in the office? How many um, emails do you answer a day? And if you think back to 2005, that's that. Those are the kind of things people would brag about at a you know happy hour after work or dinner with their friends. Like, oh my god, I was so busy today. Uh, and and that's because that's the that's the way that you win the old game of work when in in the world of office culture. I think in the new world uh, around internet work. Um, the, the base the base level of output is a task. Uh, it's it's a to do on your to do list or on someone else's to do list. And I think the what we've started to measure in Almanac is um, of the tasks that you put 
down, how many did you complete per week of tasks that other people asked you to do? How many did you complete? Because I think there's a base correlation between, you know, output and outcomes. Uh, you know, just because you're completing a lot of tasks doesn't necessarily mean you're doing great work. But I think the inverse is, uh, is true. If you're not completing work that you said that you want to do this week or that other people have asked you to do, there's probably a pretty, there's a pretty good chance that you're not producing um, good work at all because you're just, you're just not putting in the time. And the same thing uh, applies to software development. Uh, there's a strong correlation between the number of pull requests, which are basically reviews that an engineer asks of another engineer to do and and their the overall quality and, and uh, their overall output and the quality of that output. Um, and that's that's been proven out over time across many companies. And I think the same thing is true um, if we think about tasks as like the basic unit of collaboration for for knowledge workers. And so I think that the first level of the game is, are you doing the work that you said you were going to do? Are you completing work that other people ask you to do? Um, and and that's a, a good place to start with instrumenting. Uh, you know, are you... <laughs> are you producing? Are you good at your job? I think there's a second level, which is, um, is the work that you're producing high quality? So are you not just putting out a lot of work, but is that work actually moving the needle? And, th and that's a more qualitative assessment. And the way that we look at that in Almanac, the way that we, we've instrumented the tool to help um, managers understand that is uh, we have this uh, a core workflow around reviews where you can ask for approvals on uh, documents, um, ask for feedback, which is less binding, share a document with red receipts. And in all those cases, the person you're asking for, say, approval has the option to either approve your document, send it back to you, or leave kind of a meta comment. So like red, yellow, green. <laughs> um, and so we can actually look over time to see uh, what percent of your documents did people approve? What percent of your documents did people send back? And, you know, I think it's you probably wouldn't want a world where uh, every document was approved green. I mean, maybe that person's just really extraordinary. I think it's normal that sometimes you get work sent back, sometimes you get work approved. But in the same way, there's public, there's a strong negative correlation that people are always sending back your work and getting and being able to analyze that metadata on um, not just did you complete the task, but how did people think about your work? Was did people think it was good? Did people think it was bad? Um, that starts to provide some instrumentation around that next level of the game where you're measuring not just outputs but outcomes. You know, did Scott uh, push the ball forward <laughs> with his with his step in the process? And I. What's exciting about this is um, we, we have analytics built into the tool that you can see on your own of how many, just on a, on a weekly basis, how many things did you do? And, and we hear from a lot of customers that they get addicted to the scores, um, like that, that they want to see that every week that they're improving the number of tasks and reviews that they do. Um, I certainly look at it all the time as kind of a measure of my own productivity, uh, you know, to see, to see where I, I rank against myself. Um, and we haven't even yet uh, released uh, showing people how they rank against other people in their company, which I think would make the game even more addictive. But I, I think that being able to you know clearly understand as a as a professional like what are the rules of the game I'm playing um, and how do I rank is is core to the human psyche <laughs> and to to feeling uh, that that we did great work at the end of a week and and ultimately I think that's what people want and need from their jobs. Wow, there, there's so much here to unpack what you just said. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it very, very clean and moving forward. I think the first point that you made is someone to retort to mine. I definitely agree on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Everyone has does different things. But when I, I again, try to think of for the big picture, I think it's a little bit easier 
a developer side or a support person, even if you look at like a week, right? If you look at developer, a sprint, right? Did in the designer, did they get the design handed over by the time of that sprint? Did they get the, the feature rolled out or the bug fix rolled out by the time it was expected? Did the person get an average of 20 tickets a day within, within the week versus other things? So, but I do love the point of your next point of every really moving like the idea of output towards tasks. So even let's say, again, the example that I brought, like a people ops person, right? They wanted to implement a new employee recognition tool, right? That was a new project that came on the line. So breaking down each step, right? One week of researching employee recognition tools. Second one, no signing up and doing internal testing. Step three, no pilot testing. So in essence, right, you can still maybe on a week to week or on a shorter term period, mark productivity by yes, did they do the research check? Did they sign up for said tool check? Did they roll out the pilot tool versus, hey, it's going to be a th what's called a three month or two month project to roll out this new employee engagement tool where I think the only way people really could have understood more like on the impact side was right doing pulse surveys. What does the employee engagement employee recognition look like now? It's X. Okay, now that we've rolled out some tool during the process, what does it look like now? Three months later, what did what does it look like then? And if there's an increase, okay, yes, right? That project was successful. You made the impact, fantastic, high five. But even bringing it down on the level of even just, right? Everything is tasks, right? Again, doing this and then and being able to combine those two. Go for it. Yeah, you know, implicit in what you're saying is, is also an expectation of... Um, the, the time period you're measuring tasks on. And I think you're right that uh, the, the, the faster, like the, the shorter cycle time or the shorter period that you're measuring task completion in, I think uh, the, the more feedback that you get, uh, both for yourself as the person doing the work and, and also uh, for your manager who's looking at you. And I think one mistake um, people make regardless of whether they're in an office or uh, or distributed is is looking is, is getting feedback over too long a period. Uh, you know, we I think the ideal period to measure productivity is a week. So you know, what did you say you were going to do on Monday? On Friday, did you do it? Um, you know, if I if I have a project where I'm only looking to see did I do stuff over like a quarter or even worse, like a half a year or a year, um, you know, I'm I'm not getting feedback as the person doing the work on um, like has my rate of progress. Um, I'm probably also not then shipping work. Uh, and let's take your example of someone in HR or people ops. Like, you know, if my job is to uh, write job descriptions, you know, if I'm not getting feedback on them frequently, then I don't actually know um, if my work is good. And that's the outcome side. But I also probably am, I might be slow in terms of in terms of my output. And so I think a week is the right period to look at uh, like task based productivity. Um, it's how we all, you know, evaluate our kind of work in general, but one mistake, we, we have a core belief based on research we've done with the highest performing teams that the more you ask for feedback, um, the, the better your eventual work product will be said another way. There's a extremely strong correlation between, um, the, the rate of feedback and iteration on a work product and its eventual end quality. So we like to say, um, the more you ask for feedback, um, the better the, the result will be. And, and so uh, helping people measure their, their productivity in shorter time periods incentivizes people to ask for feedback quicker, get drafts out there. Uh, and, and then that, that just implicitly improves the end quality of the work versus having you know, work 
measuring work over longer periods of time, having it take longer, having um, the, the feedback cycle uh, extend and, and, and overall not really getting any, any input on like, is this on the right track? Is this good? Uh, until, as, as you said, maybe months after you started the task. Yeah, so I think that I mean perfectly lines me up for for the next stage and what we'll talk about pre uh, during industrial revolution. But I, I believe the future future of work step one will be output, right? All work will be based on output because that will be the simplest thing in most cases for people to measure. And I think beyond that, version two will be the impact. Even in sales, right? If you're right, a CEO of Almanac, would you, would you rather have a salesperson making one sale for a million dollars or you know ten sales for half a million dollars? right? Impact yeah. becomes the end, end of the day and the ultimate goal. But when we look back in again, in the factories, right? When everything was based on simply output in the factory days, there was no such thing as company culture and engagement and happiness, right? Your job, you came there at nine o'clock in the morning, you did your job on the assembly line, putting together whatever, maybe you had like a, an hour lunch break. There were no breaks. There was no happiness. There was no focus on literally anything of that, just come in, check yeah. in, do your job, check out, move away. Like that shifted, which we'll get to in, in a moment in the office. But I think with, the, with your point of feedback, like that culture piece, to me, that's very much of a culture piece that like I, if you don't have that great culture of transparency and honest feedback and relationships within the team, does that lend to, hey, I'm not comfortable in giving someone honest feedback and kind of a, you know, a, a yellow face or a, or, a, or a red face because I don't want that person to be vengeful and then give me a yellow face and red face. So I'm going to just give you know, green faces across the board. Everything was, yeah, everything was wonderful and happy. And so I think let's talk about that evolution to, of, of culture and engagement where, again, there was nothing in the factory when you went to the office where, again, it wasn't based on specific output and it was more in presence, right? That opened the door towards coffee breaks, which came you know, in, into World War II, but relationships and smoke breaks and coffee breaks and, and all those things that were building culture there because, right, at the end of the day, you knew that you weren't responsible for one plane or, or 50 widgets that day, right? You weren't responsible for some output, but now you could spend your time building relationships and having conversations and all those different pieces. And again, I would love to kind of hear your take of it and how it potentially looks in the future. Cause I know this is a very big point on like that async methodology where I, I personally believe some people are, are going to go way too far with the idea of, of async, but just kind of love your sense of how it goes, where it's going and, and where we're going with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think with, uh, with COVID and COVID was a one-way door into remote work and, and with the pandemic, we lost, I think the best part of the office, which is that, as I mentioned, you know, even before remote work, there was meeting message overload in offices. There was chaos when it came, when it came, when it comes to basic collaboration, but at least you could turn to the person next to you and laugh about the dysfunction um, as friends and uh, get lunch with people and go out after work for uh, some drinks. And, I think the social aspect of the office, the ability to build relationships was a, its biggest benefit. And what COVID did was that it exposed the naked truth about work itself, which is that um, it's a complete mess while taking away the only thing that made it bearable, which is that you, could, you got to do with other people in person that you really liked. And so I think that's led to a crisis of connection and trust. And we can see that in the data about half of remote, remote managers feel like they have less visibility into the work that their team is doing about the same number feel uh, 
a lack of trust around the quality of work that their team is producing. And there's been a corresponding increase in micromanagement where 40% of people say that they feel micromanaged at least once a week, 20% of people say they feel micromanaged once a day. Um, and so we, we certainly, uh, the role of relationships at, at work, in work is, is incredibly important to people's happiness and, and I would say their productivity. And I think it's a, a huge um, prerogative for remote managers and leaders to figure out how do we create the kinds of relationships that people need to be happy and to do great work, even if they're not in the same place. And I think that's why you've seen the rise of um, retreats for uh, remote and distributed teams. Uh, there's been an explosion, I think, of um, different models of how to do retreats, companies, of course, and so a whole mini economy has sprouted up around this. Uh, and I think it's like any new market, just, uh, you know, uh, there's been an avalanche of experimentation around um, different ways that you can bring people together uh, in person to replicate some of the best parts of the office. I also think there's been a ton of experimentation about how you can help people form relationships when they're not together, because it's just uh, you know, financially unfeasible to fly people around the world all the time. Uh, and so it's a, it's a big management opportunity to figure out, well, how, how do we replicate the kinds of deep relationships that people got in the office, um, even if they're online? One of the things that we've, we've done at Almanac that's been very successful is a program called Almanac Community Dialogues, where uh, we, we group cohorts of employees together. It's, it's an opt-in voluntary program. Um, and they spend uh, two hours a week together for 10 weeks uh, talking about uh, big life questions, questions about relationships and work and purpose and meaning and family. Um, and when they're there, they, it's, a, it's a strict no technology environment except for Zoom. Um, the time is protected so that they're not bothered by things happening at work. And the whole idea is for people to really get to know each other at a deeper level, not just at the, like, what would happen in a, you know, work happy hour after one drink, but maybe you go out, you spend all night with someone at work and you really get into it or, you have a really great lunch with somebody. What we're trying to do with the community dialogues is help people understand who they're working with at a, at a more a deeper and human level. And uh, not just have we heard, uh, you know, amazing satisfaction scores in the program, but if, if we, when we look at the retention data, um, I don't think we've lost a single, well, in general, we have very high <laughs> retention. I think it's like 97%, but, um, you know, we haven't uh, voluntarily lost a single person who's participated in a community dialogue um, you know, in, in our four years of, of running these programs. And so, and we hear from people all the time that because they know, you know, for example, who Scott is at a deeper, more human level, uh, they can collaborate a lot better. Um, the work feels a lot more fun and satisfying. And, you know, the community dialogues is just one of many ideas, I think, that are out there around how you can replicate some of the relationships that people have in the office online. And I'm not really worried about this, because if you look at the consumer side of the house, like, People clearly can create magic on the internet through, uh, if you look at Reddit or Facebook or Instagram, like uh, there's, there's all sorts of tools and apps and experiences that um, equal, if not exceed <laughs> the kind of magic you get from uh, consumer social interaction in person. I just think we are 15 years behind consumer in figuring out how that should happen in a professional context, but I'm not worried we're going to get there. <sighs> That that's interesting. And maybe I would love if you can give a, a few more examples of things that you do with you no know, team relationship and, and building. Because I, I think when I think of the future of work and all the amazing opportunities it's going to open, the one fear that I have is in this specific area is the relationship building. Because again, we take a historically output widgets. You didn't talk to anyone. You sat in front of your 
machine. You did whatever. End of the day, you went home with your family. That was it. As we push this async first messaging as kind of the way we're going to work in the future, which I absolutely agree with, the whole concept comes on deep work, right? I can achieve so much more and what I need to do by deep work and not being bothered and like, let me do my things. And it's even, I had Chase Warrington on the, the podcast number of probably a couple of months ago talking about IRLs. And we spoke about virtual relationship building, virtual engagement in the middle. And they talked about some of the things that they did, but it even seemed like even do it what I think maybe like the, the creme of the crop of you know, remote cultures and different things. Again, we didn't dive specifically deep into the topic, but it seemed like their virtual engagement was maybe like once or twice a month. Um, and like what people do. So that, I think to me, that's my biggest fear is, especially many companies will probably get it wrong upfront, right? Here, okay, we're doing async, we're doing deep work. Okay, now, now I'm going to be crazy priorities and you know, getting things done faster. And when people, companies are kind of doing it wrong and the employees themselves are also, hey, deep work, I can just focus on what I'm doing. Does that relationship building, and yes, it's all voluntary, but now does it become like, hey, it's a distraction, right? I'm supposed to be working for all my day. I don't have any meetings. So now like you want me to have a coffee thing with somebody, you want me to do a conversation with somebody, like this is taking me away from my deep work. So for me, I think that, that's that's what, what scares me the most, where people kind of get lost. And I think even like the last point I wanted to bring for like the, the Industrial Revolution, more World War II, was what we really got from World War II was the idea of mission-based work, purpose-based work, right? You were working in the factory to help win the war, to get your husband, father, son, whatever it is, home faster, right? Very big idea of mission-based work, somewhat carried along. And this is something that I argue with many founders. I, I've consulted with God knows how many founders. And even on this point of some founders have the idea of, and including that in the job description, that's, I mean, their job application, that's one of my most unfavorite pieces. Like, oh, why do you want to join the company? In most cases, because people need a job, right? Unless you're doing something super sexy or super whatever. If you're building an accounting software, like do people really care about accounting? Like, no, they just need a job. Um, so as again, potentially we move in this direction, do we move away from mission-driven work, right? Maybe people are hiring asynchronously, they're not spending as much time building relationships. So it kind of moves away from the mission, right? It's just, hey, this is my job, right? I kind of come in nine o'clock, I do whatever I gotta do, deep work until five o'clock, I check out, I don't really care, I'm not connected to anyone else, I just come in, come out. That, that's my biggest fear. And you said like, you're not as, you're not as worried. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, again, maybe some more thoughts on like the mission piece. And again, maybe a little bit more of what Almanac is doing to connect employees and build those relationships to hopefully prevent that my greatest fear in the, the future of work. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, that, that prospect that you just explained sounds thoroughly depressing. And, and I think we, and for that reason, I think it won't happen because that's not what people, that's not what humans need. Uh, I, I do think that there's an overall trend around the internet of um you know increasing loneliness and stratification and and it's not just about work i think this is happening in all aspects of life um you know we and i, I think it's correlated with a um a broader decline in institutions uh whether it's religion or um trust in government or trust in media uh you know there's a, a recent uh, startling poll from the wall street journal that showed that um uh, Americans uh, trust in in a bunch of institutions, and that went went through all the ones I just mentioned: uh, 
religion, government, media, um, military has has declined precipitously since uh, 1980. The only uh, institution or, or, or value that increased was money, um, which is makes sense because it's pretty. <laughs> and I think that's that, that worries me a little bit to see that, um, you know, the things these these broader projects that give us meaning and purpose um, where we were contributing to something beyond ourselves. Um, that have broadly declined. Um, there's there's been polls of that show that one, one the only other area, uh, the only other institution that hasn't declined is is business. And you know these days, corporate leaders, CEOs are um, are, are are the 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 highest uh, the highest valued and most trusted type of leader we have, more than faith leaders or government leaders. And you know we could about we could we could discuss if we think that's right, but it but is the reality that. Um, and, and you can see it in the news every day with CEOs being asked to, to comment on questions of morality or questions in culture. And there's been a debate about how much companies, I think, should participate in that. But I think the reason that we're even having this debate in the first place is that um, companies and teams um, have become, for a lot of people, like the last uh, one, of, one of the last places where community is possible. We're contributing to something bigger than yourself is, is, is possible. And, and I think we can't lose that. And I think we won't lose that. Uh, so, and so I think that, you know, we, you can, we, we can discuss whether um, it's, uh, whether every company should have a mission. But I, I think that, you know, in the same way that producing bolts to build airplanes in World War II um, was meaningful, even if building a bolt <laughs> itself was kind of boring work, like building accounting software to help power other people's work, I think is a meaningful project. Uh, and I, I think it's not on, you know, if it's the only person that it matters to is the person who's doing the work. And so it's not on me to say, you know, someone may look up at Almanac uh, and say like, hey, I think that's stupid. Why would anyone build collaboration software? That doesn't seem like a good use of time. But what matters is that I think it's a good use of time, as, as does our team. Um, and that, 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 that we feel like it's we are doing something every day that's uh, beyond just satisfying our basic needs uh, or. Um, satisfying our basic egos. And I think that's what makes work meaningful for people is that you're contributing to something bigger than yourself um, with other people you trust and respect. And and I think that's um, essential uh, to feeling like you've had um, a great week and a great life. You know, I know on your point on deep work, I used to think that uh, a great week was that you had time for focus and flow and, and, um, when we've talked to people and we've, we've interviewed over 5,000 people, we always ask, um, how do you define uh, a great week? And it, the answer is rarely <laughs> that they had time to do deep work. Uh, I'd say 85, 90% of people I've talked to say that um, a great week is one where they, where they got their stuff done, where they got stuff done. Um, and that often means um, getting stuff done with other people. And so, uh, you know, whether that stuff is is having a creative brainstorm or whether it's getting through a list of tasks or whether it's launching something and getting it out the door. Uh, you know, people define great weeks by the, by the work that they do, how productive they feel. Um, and, you know, whether it's a, it was a smooth experience with the people that they were, they were working with. And that was a surprise to me, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and so I, I think back to this question of like, you know, are we going to end up in a world where people are just like, you know, new, new widgets, uh, in a in a machine on the internet factory floor, um, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, because I think people want more than that. Uh, if 
from the thousands of people I've talked to and, and, and they're going to jobs, uh, looking for jobs that provide that kind of meaning and purpose, um, and the ability to feel like their time was well spent. Yeah, that brings me to my next question, which is, I think, the last point in our World War II piece, and we'll, we'll shift now into the first internet age, we'll call it in the 90s and, and 2000s. And I think it's very, 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 like, very focused today. Post-World War II work, office, no, white-collar work, both the company and the employee wanted there to be a 20, 30-year relationship. Right, you know that kind of historic idea of somebody worked there for twenty something years. They retired at whatever. They got a golden watch when they retired. There was very much of they wanted structure. They wanted the you know, long term thing. They wanted dependency. We've seen that obviously shift today. I myself personally blame the whole VC world and investment model on that. Um, I'm very kind of jaded in, in this specific area where again VCs are very focused. Right, it's, it's growth at all costs. Right burn as much money so long as you get that hockey stick growth and nothing else matters and really where people go from you no know, a founding team where it's a, it's it's a team it's a family it's a group or whatever the core people and as soon as that money comes in the door it just shifts now people are now numbers in excel spreadsheet so what we've seen right the la unfortunately the last year is right company investor says whoa got to pull back the brakes cut half your expenses and now a person who used to be a person, right, who was there for a long time, helped build the company, they're now a digit in Excel spreadsheet. And you do like a little lookup. If you know, this number is higher than X, turn the row red and fire that person. So with, I think for me, VC world money kind of forcing that shift from people and long-term relationships versus, hey, get growth at all costs and just come in, do your job. And if you can't, whatever it is, fire people at, at will. Um, unfortunately, again, which has been very evident uh, the last year, does that further entrench maybe out of, I don't want to say out of desire, because I definitely agree with you. Like people want to go to work. They want to, I believe they have, they want to have connection with the people that they work with. I'm very much of that, that sense. But if the, it's not a two-way street and if the company again is just right, I have no choice. The VC tells me I need to cut expenses and sorry, you got to go with the idea of deep work and async and again, changing the methodologies and maybe people just coming for project work and whatever. Again, what does that look like, right? Where it used to be, hey, I hire you at Almanac, right? I want you to be here your entire career. As long as the company is going, I don't ever want you to go where, where somewhere is versus other companies like, hey, you're is here as long as the VC tells us we can pay you in theory. And then again, what that does to the methodology and the mindset of the employee itself. Like, again, does it jade them that, hey, if the company's not really going to care about me and it's not going to really go through tough times and, hey, you know what? If the CEO is not going to take a 30% pay cut just to save jobs, potentially save my job, why the hell am I going to you know, go the extra mile or try to do something for them? So I'd love to kind of hear your sense of how you know, we're moving in that sense of seemingly away from the long-term relationship from both sides into what we've been seeing in the last 20 years. Yeah, well, I, I think in, in general, what we've seen with the internet, and again, you've seen this, we've seen this trend in lots of other places is um, like the disintermediation of the relationship between um, uh, on one side work and the other side, uh, people, you know, before, if you wanted a job, you had to go uh, work for an employer because that employer was the only 
vehicle essentially that could gather enough resources to build a factory and buy the land and um, buy the parts to to produce stuff. So if you wanted to you know produce value, you had to go to an employer um, often at a physical location at a time. Um, and I think the best part about the internet and and we've seen this in music, we've seen this in TV, um, we've seen this in like in basically you know all industries. Uh, now the person who creates value can have a much more uh, direct relationship with the market. So Taylor Swift. Um, can start her own production company because she doesn't actually need a record company. She can distribute on her own. And in the same way, you know, someone who produces work, whether they're, it's obvious to see in the influencer or creator world, but it's true in every world that consultants, um, you know, they, they can go directly find work uh, in the market without needing a company to back them up. And I think that's why we've seen, uh, you know, an explosion in different models of work and models of employment. Um, you have like solopreneurs and creators on one end, you have I think employers using different forms of employment, like the contractor model has exploded versus just, you know, full-time employment. Um, people now can have more than one job. Uh, and I, I think like kind of, it's kind of a rainbow of, um, of new options for people around uh, how they want to work. And, and I generally think that's a good thing because now people can work in, in the same way that remote has unlocked uh, flexibility around when and where you work. Um, I think there's, there's new flexibility and options around, um, you know, how you work, how you get paid, uh, and that, that can fit people's preferences and lifestyles. Uh, you know, I used to work for a Lyft and, uh, you know, what we heard from drivers all the time is that a lot of them just wanted to be their own boss. And, uh, we, we, there'd be working mothers or people who are caregivers, uh, people who could never work in a, in a, in a company who were driving for Lyft because it gave them ownership over their time. And that was it a key reason that drivers join the platform. And that's just one example, I think, of uh, the, the diversity of new um, employment models that have sprouted up because of the internet and because of what, what, what the internet can do between, between that relationship between someone who's creating value and somebody who needs it. Uh, you know, in, in terms of your, the other part of your question, which is around um, maybe like someone's relationship with their employer, you know, I, I believe that I, I roll my eyes when companies talk about uh, their employees and teams as family, because I don't think that your uh, team at work is your family. Um, I think they, they're your colleagues. Um, maybe some of them can become your friends over time. Um, certainly trust and respect is, an, is a critical ingredient to, um, to having a productive relationship with these people. Uh, but they're not your family <laughs> because inevitably the relationship ends uh, unless you're, you know, one of the lucky few people that spend their entire life at, at one company. Um, but I think as, as we just talked about in today's world, that's, that's a very uh, advantagingly small group of people. Uh, and so I think, you know, one of the, one of the important things for employees to develop as a muscle in this, in this world of internet work is having other forms of association besides the people you work with, um, you know, becoming part of your local community, uh, joining sports teams. You know, there's been interesting data around uh, things like CrossFit um, that I've seen uh, in, the, in the pre remote world uh, that the most popular classes were like 6 and 7 a.m. and 5 and 6 p.m. And now the middle of the day um, is, is the most popular time classes around 11 and 12 and 1 because people can now go work out whenever they want to. Uh, same thing is true when looking at um, the uh, like receipts from coffee shops and restaurants that, uh, you know, people are now uh, using their entire day to, to engage with the, with their community outside of work, not just the, 
the periods before nine and after five. And, and so I think that's a, a positive part of remote work is that people are rediscovering all the other associations they can be part of uh, beyond just uh, the people they work with, who, as I said, I, I don't think are in the end, a group of people that might be there for the long term. I, I love that point. And it, again, I, I appreciate you lining up my next question. So you, you're doing a great job uh, of that uh, today. And I think about, you know, the internet age, people started again moving outside of San, San Francisco to the suburbs, outside of New York to the suburbs, again, transition to white, white collar work. So what we have seen, it's more of your life was in or around work, right? When, when I, before I went remote, I was living in Long Island at the time. I was commuting 70, 80 minutes each way down to downtown Manhattan. I worked, let's say, a nine-hour day. So 12 hours of my day was work, work-related. And I think what that had caused was the big influence, big introduction of employee engagement, right? That employees going to have to spend so much time in the office, coming to work, leaving work, that we need to engage them and make them happy and do all these different things for them to kind of keep them connected. With that said, and I think as you kind of have pointed out, if we, again, as we move more towards remote work, right, where you can work anywhere, you don't have to come into an office. So that gets rid of the 70, 80 minute commute. We're moving more towards asynchronous. We're moving more towards the idea of output or impact versus presence. So I don't have to work a nine to five schedule. I can live the life that I want to live. In. And that's a question that I always raise. And when I think about it in the past, it, it fascinates me, right? If you think about when you're in office, can you ever remember at 10 o'clock in the morning or three in the afternoon, going to the pharmacy, running an errand, going to the doctor? Like heaven, heaven forbid, like that was, that was what your lunch hour was for. Like you had a lunch hour, whatever errands and things you needed to do, that was the time. And the rest of the time was dedicated in the office and doing work. And yes, I think as we're moving towards the future of work, we're seeing that shift to allow better quality of life and people to do all those, those different bits and pieces. So how that impacts, again, our day. And I think the, the big piece, it's, and this is, I think, one of the questions that maybe fascinates me most, and I would love to hear your, your two cents on it, right? The company was always responsible and owned employee engagement, right? But what does that look like in the future? Now that people have more time, as you're saying, they're doing CrossFit, they're doing coffee, they're doing things more in their local community. What, where does the trade-off come? Do companies say, hey, you know what? We'll support you being in your local community, right? We'll pay for a co-working space, we'll pay for coffee, whatever it is. We're not going to spend the time, effort in company and employee engagement. We'll give that to you in your local community, maybe take those experiences, real life experiences and bring them into the virtual and try to build relationships that way, maybe outside of IRLs. But I, I would love to kind of you know, hear your thoughts on that because again, I, I see this transition as, as we future work and as these things, the office and connectivity potentially within the company becomes somewhat less relevant and maybe engagement more in the local community can, comes in that more important. But how does that obviously that translate into like the big emphasis of employee engagement equals productivity and happiness and all these different things that we've seen such an effort for the last you know, 20, 20 something years? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first level is, um, as we talked about before, it's uh, employee engagement is like a, a a priority based on presence, right? It's like engage people in the office. And I think as we move to a world where um, outputs are important, the, 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 the critical ingredient to um, an output based culture is that uh, managers trust that their work, that their employees are getting work done. 
even if they're not working from nine to five in a specific location. And the way to breed trust is transparency. And so we need uh, better tracking and metrics so that managers um, feel like they have some grip on whether their team is producing work. And I think that's totally reasonable because I think uh, as a manager myself, it's it's important to know that, um, you know, even if the game has changed and how it's played, that, um, you know, people are still succeeding at it. And, and that means that uh, we're not measuring anymore if someone's in their seat at 9 a.m., but instead, as we talked about before, whether they're completing work that they said that they were going to do during the week and that that work is good and helping us um, create business value. And so uh, assuming that there's a, a system in place for managers to transparently understand that people are getting stuff done and that that work is good and that therefore there's trust uh, between, you know, on teams, um, you know, I think that then unlocks uh, flexibility for um, for the team around how it wants to build its culture. And, you know, I'm a big fan of markets <laughs> and, and as you can probably tell experimentation, I don't think that there's one way to do culture, even in a remote context. I think one way to think about this is that companies before spent a certain amount of money on uh, office rent and furniture and free coffee and uh, social hours. And, you know, that, then the question is, okay, how much, uh, what should we do with that money now that the context of work has shifted to, uh, to, to distributed or remote settings? So some companies might decide, hey, we're not going to give any of that back to employees. Um, we're going to, that'll, that'll turn into profits in our P&L. And because employees own equity, or even if they don't, like, we're going to either, you know, give that value back to, to the shareholders. Um, some, some companies may say, hey, we're going to give that money as stipends <laughs> back to employees and say, hey, like, you can spend it on a co-working space in your local community, or uh, we're going to, every day, we'll let you subsidize uh, or, you know, reimburse your lunch up to $20. Some companies may pour it all into uh, remote retreats. Some companies may pour it into um, executive coaching or uh, mental health services. And and again, I don't think there's one right answer here. I think uh, different companies will will create online cultures in different ways. And I think employees will find um, a set of uh, experiences and benefits and um, you know, pay rates that match their preferences. And, and I think it's, there will be more options <laughs> because there's more ways to spend that money <laughs> than before in an office setting where there's like almost a relatively constrained set of things that you can do uh, in an office or in a city, like you were saying. And so I think there'll be um, a greater diversity of um, experiences that employees or workers can opt into uh, that, that are better aligned with their individual preferences leading to overall higher satisfaction but I don't think there's one, there's not one right answer here, in my opinion. Um, and uh, as you can tell, I'm probably pretty optimistic about this because I feel like work has improved for me uh, since I've started working remotely. Uh, you know, as someone who leads a company, I've been able to design <laughs> Almanac in a way that fits my preferences. Um, and, and I think find a group of people uh, who share those preferences. And so Overall, I think our employee satisfaction is really high. Our employee retention is really high. Our team productivity is really high. And that, I think that comes from the fact that like, as a manager, as a leader, I have so many more variables I can play with in designing the way our company works. Uh, one thing I'll note though, is that I, I still think there's kind of, there's going to be a distribution of, uh, of quality when it comes to management and leadership. There's going to be some companies uh, like I think Almanac that are really, in, really intentional uh, about 
um, how they run the company, are aware about all these choices they can make, um, care about the quality of life and work for their team. There's going to be some companies on the other end that, you know, despite having all these options, just are terrible <laughs> at running their businesses and terrible at managing people and don't care. There's going to be a bunch of companies in the middle. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's because I think if, if you think about the internet as a form of technology that has changed how work has happened, most, form, most technologies make people more productive. It's like, you know, moving from a, a steam engine to an airplane, you know, we can, we can go places further and faster, but that doesn't, uh, so, so the, our overall productivity increases, but it doesn't change the distribution of the curve. Some people take advantage of that technology more than others. And so I, I think that, you know, while remote work makes the world better on average for everybody, um, there's still going to be better and worse employers, better and worse employees uh, who are able to leverage the technology of internet work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that as we move forward, especially around culture and engagement, it, it is that requirement for intentionality as is the central word of, of remote work. And I think it you know, brings me to another thought that I had that even now I'll kind of shift more towards the end of internet age one to the remote OGs, right? Historically in the offices, culture happened a lot in itself, right? You had lunches together and beers after work together and ping pong tables and all the other whatever stuff they were doing. Even many of the original OG remote companies, and I'll throw Envision in, in that uh, group as well, weren't intentional yeah. with the culture that was created, right? Because it wasn't easy. You just couldn't pop up and go to lunch with somebody. You couldn't go do beers after work and again, required that intentionality. And I think that's probably the biggest issue. All these companies who are saying, oh, the offices, we need the office for culture. Again, they haven't been intentional in redesigning these experiences. But I think per the conversation of where we said maybe more engagement in the local community and bringing those experiences back, I definitely believe that the future of engagement is, is, is what you said of interest-based right? Because historically, as a company, remote company, if we're doing things the right way, right, we're doing team events and fun things, but it's here, kind of take it or leave it, right? The entire team, we're doing a online Pictionary game on a whiteboard, right? If you like drawing, you like games, not like this is what we have. And again, I think that's probably the best of what we were able to do for, for many years in, a, in remote experience. But I think as we move forward, I think the connectivity and the culture piece will move much more towards Hey, right. Everyone doesn't need to be friends. Everyone doesn't need to be connected. Connect with those people who are into hiking and outdoors and whitewater rafting and talk about groups like that, uh, or who maybe are local. They all live in San Francisco and they want to get together and work together for a short amount of time. We'd love to kind of get your, your sense of like how that shift becomes much more into that interest-based and what companies can do. And again, what the intentionality will come into, right? Because how will a company create, I mean, will that move back more towards like the grassroots movement? Like can a company say, oh, we're going to do a hiking trip for this group and like a San Francisco meetup for that group? Like, will it even be possible? Or, hey, the power is in the hands of the employees. Like you guys organize the way you want. We'll give you money to work, to spend, the, to do the things that you want to do. And again, what is that shift? Like the shift, like the ownership of culture still remain on like the HR people ops or do we kind of go back someone to like the grassroots of, hey, you guys organize yourself, you do your things yourself, we'll support you financially. I think that's one of the things also fascinates me very much. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know if there'll be kind of one way that this en ends up happening. I think um, s some companies, 
I think we'll we'll take the money that they were spending before on on culture, which I would also include office rent in, and say we're going to give this all back to you in the form of higher salaries. We will have nothing to do with culture, uh, and you know it's it's your choice how you want to spend that money. Um, you could you could spend your salary on a co working space. You could spend your uh, money put it in savings. And I think there's a group of people that that would absolutely love that and say like I never wanted my employer to be spending any money on this. I thought it was a waste of time and resources. And like, I want to work somewhere where my employer trusts me to spend money the way that I want. Um, I think there are some people on the opposite end that say like, I want my employer to, I want work to be an experience and I want to be constantly stimulated with programming. Um, assuming that a company can make money while doing that, uh, I think some employers will, will choose that path and, you know, have constant retreats and tons of interest groups that are centrally managed, uh, and facilitated and there's going to be some people that like absolutely love that model and, and want that and i think um so so i don't know if there's going to be one answer when it comes to how culture is done or even an answer to whether it's going to be central centrally managed or distributed um i tend to think that you know at, at early stage companies a lot of the stuff is organic based on the people who are there uh, and that's why they are best practices that pay really close attention to the first five to 10 or 20 people you hire because they're going to set the culture for the rest of the company. Um, you know, at our company, we have a, a Slack channel called cute feed and it's somebody created. And, um, it's a hugely popular channel where people post pictures of their kids and dogs and funny stuff from the internet. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have created a Slack channel called cute feed, but now it's an important part of our culture because by an accident of, of history, a random event, somebody did. Um, and so, and so I think, culture is often organic in that way where, yeah, the, what the CEO or the management team wants has some role, but also um, who you hire and, and their personalities and their interests um, often create a path dependency from the early days around what a company's culture ends up being. And uh, the, that is totally out of the control of the, of the founder or the, uh, the management team in the first place. Very interesting. So I know cognizant of time, I, I want to keep it to two more questions if that's uh, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. So first one is we saw kind of in the internet age, the shift towards right global hiring, which then was focused very much on hubs, right? We hired a hub in India. We hired a hub in London. We hired a hub in whatever place it was. And salaries were always localized. So in, in London, you paid X. In India, you paid Y. So a lot of it was very focused on Let's find talent that we couldn't find before and let's find it probably for cheaper. The remote shift towards remote work for most remote OG companies for the same, hey, we want to get the best talent anywhere was even still regional only. And this is still an issue today, which I get very frustrated with. Hey, we're hiring US only or Central, you know, Central European time only. And historically, you know, at least going back, I remember to the early days of Envision when I was running the HR and ops for this was, right, you had two reasons. Number one was legal compliance, right? It would cost a hell of a lot of money to create some subsidiary in some whatever country to hire one person, right? That issue is now solved by great companies like Deal and Oyster and Remote and others. And the other piece was on synchronous time. Like you wanted that synchronous overlap. Everyone to be on meetings and whatever jazz that you have now. As we shift, right, in the future of work, asynchronous by default, hire the best talent anywhere. Do companies, and what is that push to companies that we're going to truly hire anywhere, 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 because we don't, 
necessarily need, right? We don't have synchronous meetings. We, we have Oyster and Deal and, and companies to hire and pay people the, the way we need to. What do you see is that shift? And secondary around salaries, right? That's always been a frustrating thing for me. I, I personally believe in the idea of global compensation, right? You should, somebody should get paid on the contribution or impact they make to the company and not where the hell they live, right? If two people are doing the same job, make the same contribution to the company, why the hell are they being paid two different salaries? You know, for me, culturally, that's a, a terrible thing. Um, but I'd love to kind of hear your your sense of when, where, is is there that shift to moving away from US only and Central Bureau in Europe, and, hey, we're gonna truly hire wherever the hell they are, right? Because we don't need to care about the legal compliance anymore. That's taken care of. We're moving towards async, so we don't need to care about synchronous meetings anymore. What does salary look like? And we'll we'll go from there on that first question. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've had periods at Almanac where we've had uh, employees uh, or team members and, you know, every inhabitable time zone that existed. And it was an interesting stress test uh, to for our operations. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're uh, we sell software that helps people collaborate without meetings and certainly reduce their meetings. But I still think even in a company like ours where there's, two days a week that people work totally asynchronously, we still need meetings uh, for a lot of things. Um, and and it, it can be a scheduling challenge, I think, to have people all over the place. You know, it cer certainly takes work. Um, sometimes it's even impossible if you have, uh, say, a team that has has folks uh, in Europe, the United States, and Asia. There's very few win periods of time where someone isn't sleeping. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's maybe the last that's on the extreme end of uh, can a company operate if it's in every time zone? Um, you either have to be really asynchronous and, and never have to meet, or or just get really good at scheduling and operations so that you can you can make it work. Um, so so I understand companies that limit things a little bit uh, to you know say we only want to be in you know Europe and the United States because that's manageable, or we want to be in Europe and and Asia or Asia and the United States. But I think trying to be to cover, you know, 24 hours of time um, with, with some level of meetings required can be really difficult. So, uh, you know, we, we th that doesn't, though, mean that you only have to be in the United States. Uh, we, we see lots, we have a, a big team in South America, for example, and we see lots of benefits of having em employees down there. Um, we see lots of benefits of having uh, a big team in Europe, which we do. Um, you know, we personally at Almanac have, I think, had trouble with, uh, as I said, running a 24-hour operation that, that requires meetings. That's the, the honest truth. Um, but I, I think it is possible uh, if, you, if you plan enough and you, you really work hard to move async. I think on your question on, on comp, just to lay out the scale on one side, one theory is, uh, or one option is, we pay everybody the same amount, no matter where they live. On the other side <laughs> uh, is, you know, we pay people according to localized pay scales. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in the business of saying what a company should do. My, my, my personal opinion on this is, and, and the approach that we've taken at Almanac is to split the difference. So, uh, you know, for, for employees who are, um, if you think about kind of the, the top tier markets being San Francisco and New York and London, uh, for, um, for comp rates, uh, you know, people in those, we, we, people in those markets need to be paid at those rates because the cost of living in those markets is high enough that, uh, that their salaries are are are, are such um, for people that live in less expensive markets. Uh, what we do at Almanac is we um, give uh, 
their salary, we split the difference with the employee. And so um, between the price of living in say Denver versus San Francisco, uh, we set their salary in a way that half of that, uh, half of that difference goes to them in the form of higher salary and half of that comes back to us. Um, that we think that uh, it's, it's obviously more financially efficient for us as a business, but it also helps with employees who move um, to different places. Uh, you know, if you move from San Francisco to Denver, um, it, it sucks as an employer to say, hey, we're going to like, we have to cut your salary. <laughs> and it also gives people less of an incentive to leave a place that they might live in, like living for other reasons. They're, it's where their family is. They, you know, enjoy the, the culture or the geography to a city like San Francisco just to get paid more. Because, um, you know, if you wanted to live in Jakarta and work at Almanac, um, you know, splitting, even if you're getting paid less in San Francisco, you're actually having a much higher quality of life uh, because you're getting paid at, you know, some, some factor of the local, uh, the local pay scale. So, you know, I, again, that's, that's the answer that works for us at Almanac. And that I think is a nice balance between the two options. Cause I see, I see drawbacks to, to both of the extremes. Um, but I, I really respect companies that have set a global pay scale uh, regardless of where people live, um, that makes a lot of logical sense to me. I also understand companies, often very large companies, that need to pay locally because it's because uh, because it's just more uh, you know easier to figure out and and financially infeasible to do otherwise. So, uh, you know, I, I I I respect all of the, the the reasons people pick and wherever they decide to be on the scale, but. Um, to me, kind of, kind of splitting the difference with the employee creates the right incentives for the employee and and also good outcomes for the business. No, here I I, I appreciate the, the the transparency from my my point of global comp. I, I put it more as hey, I understand, right? I'm just simply not going to be able to hire people in San Francisco and New York, right? <laughs> so I lose maybe that that five percent or ten percent of the globe. But I have the rest of the 90, yeah. 95% of the globe. And hey, there's probably just as talented or more talented people in, in those places than there are in those specific cities. Um, but the last question that I have, yeah. and because I know on time, I think the idea with asynchronous and, and all the things we're moving forward will get us away from this whole Monday through Friday, nine to five schedule, which historically has been the way, again, much more on, hey, do a specific task by a certain time frame, and what you do between now and then. I could care less. Just get get done what you need to get done. That makes sense again for that, so let's say certain group of employees, but those, let's say customer facing employees, like a customer support team, a, a sales yeah. team, that will be potentially much more difficult to do. So I think even in that, like, how does that potentially look? And even just culturally, right? You have 70% of your employees that are working whenever they want to work and they don't have the schedule and any of these other group of people who potentially may have to work a set nine to five or what have you, or can we even, will there be even the opportunity to more async even these type of roles where a support, it's okay, you don't need to be nine to five. People will hire people all over and it's like a, a, a bounty system, right? You need to kind of jump in, in the queue and out of the queue and whatever, but you need to answer 20 tickets a day. Whenever those 20 tickets are, right? So long as they're coming in, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. So I wonder even how like within the company, will companies completely be able to go towards right? Task, timeline, go for it, whatever is in the middle, totally relevant, or will only be certain companies. And if it is, I mean, certain teams, if it is certain teams, like, again, is that any potential culture clash for, for companies? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, 
and I'm and I'm excited to see companies that experiment on this front to see if there's a more variable model. You know, one of the fascinating things about being a an internet company is that you're serving people across the internet all over the world in different times and, and geographies. And so, uh, for things like customer service or sales, you actually need 24/7 coverage because um, you know even it's Sunday uh, in the United States is Monday in Australia, uh, or customers have bugs or issues with your product uh, on Friday night or on Saturday morning. And so you operationally need coverage um, across uh, all hours of the day and week. Um, and so, you know, nine to five, uh, even if you had a shift, wouldn't wouldn't be what many companies need these days. Certainly, you know, at Almanac, we need um, on-call coverage for customer service and support all the time. And so we need people, or at least someone around the world needs to be at their computer in case our, our customers have issues, uh, you know, anything less is um, below what people expect. And so, you know, I think already, you know, in the fields you mentioned, we're moving away from the idea of just like a, a nine to five and many businesses have created shift schedules that um, yeah, reflect an always on um, cadence. I think it's a, it's a, it's interesting to think, okay, well, can you move beyond just uh, like 24 seven shift model to 24 seven, a 24 seven queue. Um, there's probably some operational uh, mechanics to figure out there around like volume of when the volume of calls or work is actually getting done and making sure you have coverage during those periods. So uh, I'm not an operational expert, but it seems like you still may need certain people to be around at certain times. Otherwise you, you know, you might have too much demand in terms of it, like in customer service, inbound calls or tickets for the number of people you have to resolve. So your SLAs in that period go down because uh, you just you have you don't have enough uh, of your team online, so it feels like having some control over the amount of you know people who are online is seems to me to be logically important. But it's it's an exciting thought to imagine a world where um, we we can devise an operational scheme that doesn't require people to just um, you know be at their desks for a defined period of time, even in those even in more more operational roles, um, and, and you know. When it comes to customer service and, and to sales, to our, our our earlier point on establishing new rules of the game, you know th those are roles that are I think where a lot of managers are actually using output and outcomes data. So they are looking at in many cases the number of tickets you close and and you know customer MPS on the support side to see like did this person actually do a good job versus like just were they in their seat for a given number of hours. And so I think it's it's. It's good to see, and sales is another example of like, you know, you can make one call, you can make a thousand calls, but ultimately what matters is the amount of revenue that you bring in in a given quarter and whether you meet your quota. Um, so, you know, there's, I think there's already a shift in in many areas towards this more output and outcomes-based model. Yeah, and I guess that the, the question is, can we continue to detach those, out, those outputs from presence? Um, so we'll see what, yeah, I think it's very exciting. My my previous role, I shifted my support and success teams to a four day work week, uh, know, which was definitely interesting, and it, it worked out well. The support team we had somewhat of a um, one person would work a full day on Friday, and then as a comp, they got off the following Monday, you know, to ensure they still got a three day work a three day weekend, and right the next week they got a three day work week. I think that Jason Lumpkin, I think, had a tweet maybe yesterday, the day before, which was quite interesting of the idea of, you know, on the sales side, and right, if you walk into a store or you walk into a cafe, 
right? You get service, right? Hey, I need a coffee. I need to question about buying something. There's always a salesperson there. And I think the software side, we've moved towards scheduling and putting in the calendar and all that versus hey, if somebody comes to your website and has a question, they want to buy something, like, shouldn't there always be somebody there to service that person? Uh, which I think is yeah. fascinating how we move that. But um, people who yeah. listen to this episode who are fascinated and want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about Almanac, sign up for Almanac. Um, what's the best way to get a hold of you, get hold of Almanac? Obviously, once the, that manifesto is posted, that will be included in the show notes. So I'm no, we'll, we'll definitely include that. But what's the best way that people get in touch with you, get in touch with Almanac? Yeah, uh, well, come check out uh, us at almanac.io if you're interested in um, a better way to collaborate uh, as a remote or distributed team. And you can find me on Twitter at Adam P. Nathan. Um, and excited to hear from your community, Scott. Amazing. Adam, thank you so much for joining. I greatly appreciate yeah. uh, the conversation. I think it's uh, again, I think it's, it's important for people to really understand as we try to really push over the next hurdle to really understand how work has evolved, how pieces were intertwined, what those pieces, how those pieces of the past will impact the future um, as we move forward. So appreciate all the great insights, all the great uh, ideas that you've shared. And uh, everybody who's listening, until the next episode, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. I really hope you enjoyed it. My aim is for everyone listening to have one takeaway from each episode they can then go and use with their teams. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to support me by subscribing in your favorite podcasting app on our YouTube channel, share it with friends and colleagues, and please feel free to buy me a coffee via the show's website.